right now joining us as she does every Friday, CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent and Moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. I first asked Margaret about the U.S. current relationship with Israel as the war in Gaza continues to rage on. The Biden administration remains the United States uh, support for the state of Israel, certainly its largest weapons provider, its funder, its ally in the Middle East. It is increasingly critical of the leadership of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has the most conservative and right-wing government in Israeli history, including members who are themselves settlers, as in uh, uh, Jews who are moving into the Palestinian West Bank area and uh, declaring or sometimes purchasing land there as an outpost of the state of Israel, something that uh, President Biden came out strongly against when it came to the violence that some of these settlers have been carrying out yesterday, announcing in an executive order that it would sanction, the United States would sanction four individuals for extremist violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. So this was a significant step. It underscores the anger President Biden has that the government of Israel has not reigned in these settlers at a time when the Biden administration is very concerned about the conflict in Gaza. Gaza spilling over into the West Bank uh, and wanting the state of Israel to help um, really sort of maintain uh, security and work with the Palestinian Authority that governs with the West Bank. Um, Can you explain what that means to be a violent settler? What are they doing? Well, there are four individuals that are named in the executive order and the sanctions that were released. You can find them on the State Department and White House websites. But uh, these individuals, the specifics that are mentioned are, um, you know, carrying out violence against uh, Palestinians living there. Um, And some of the cases uh, provoking incidents, calling for violence, some of it, uh, one of the descriptive items used is is terrorist activity. I mean, very strong language used by the Mm -hmm. Biden administration to uh, lay out what uh, some of these provocative things that have been done by four Israeli nationals in the West Bank. But bigger picture, this gets at the frustration the Netanyahu and Biden administration uh, have with each other. Um, You know, members of the Netanyahu government, as I mentioned, are settlers themselves, including some of the more incendiary ones that you've heard even President Biden publicly criticize, uh, people like Ben Gavir and Smotrich. So you've had a real specific criticism that President Biden has um, leveled at certain right-wing members of the Netanyahu government. But these are members of a coalition that Netanyahu needs in order to maintain control. He is facing a lot of uh, political opposition and unrest um, and opposition from within his own electorate right now, particularly given how fatal and awful those October 7th attacks were and the massive uh, security failures that uh, his government oversaw. Why does it feel like Benjamin Netanyahu is, uh, you know, not listening? I I was going to say turning a (laughs) blind ear, but, you know, the frustration is growing. The Biden administration placing sanctions on individuals using language that says, hey, stop that. We need to find a peaceful solution to get these hot. And and Netanyahu continues the violent assault in Gaza. Uh, Why is that? 
That is an excellent question, and it's something that's frustrating a lot of Democrats and Democratic allies of the president who uh, were initially supportive of President Biden's bear hug of Netanyahu and his argument that by holding him close, he could have more influence. But now, particularly as they hear and see the the death toll, uh, particularly among Palestinian women and children alongside the Hamas fighters that Israel is targeting, um, it is causing a lot of discomfort. Uh, You have a number of Senate Democrats saying that There need to be provisions in the next Israel aid package that force it to comply with human rights law. Uh, That's going to be an active debate as as the Congress looks at the supplemental package. You have progressive Democrats as well who have been um, more critical of the Netanyahu government for some time, but certainly very vocal and protesting, as you've seen in a number of President Biden's recent public appearances. So this is becoming a political issue for the president as well with his base at a time when he is looking at a re-election. That is Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation and chief foreign affairs correspondent for CBS. I wanted her to weigh in on the 2024 presidential race, too, specifically this weekend's Democratic primary in South Carolina. The Democrats there will award their first delegates over the weekend. um, And we know that President Biden sees this very much as a way to measure his support, particularly with the black community in that state that makes up something like a quarter of the population. It was that state where uh, the legendary Jim Clyburn, the congressman from South Carolina, helped deliver a win when Joe Biden desperately needed it back in the 2020 race um, and really turned around the campaign, gave him some momentum uh, when those that, that core, that Democratic base of the party, particularly black women voters, showed up for Joe Biden back then. And right now they're hoping to sort of give a tip of the hat to what South Carolina has done for Joe Biden by trying to turn this into the first in the nation, at least for for Joe Mm -hmm. Biden's active participation. So all eyes will be on South Carolina this weekend for the Democrats. But Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump still duking it out. Mm -hmm. Does Nikki, is she gaining ground? She did surprisingly well in New Hampshire primary. How is she faring now? In her home state of South Carolina, the state she was governor of for some time and and left with a pretty strong record of having uh, run that as the chief executive, Nikki Haley is is hoping, as she says, in her sweet state of South Carolina to show that she has um, the ability to, to really challenge Donald Trump. This is going to be an uphill battle, though, because of the ruby red nature of that state in terms of Trump's support. You have, as Nikki Haley has talked talked about openly, including on Face the Nation, she has seen the political establishment line up behind Donald Trump. So they are not dealing her favors in terms of the two state sen- the two senators from South Carolina. They're with Donald Trump. Uh, a number of people, including the governor, have lined up behind Donald Trump. So she has an uphill battle. But if she can pull this off, and certainly she has kept donors with her, uh, really making public that some of the big financial backers want to see an alternative to Mr. Trump, it, this could be interesting. But uh, let's be clear here. Donald Trump is still the front runner.
That's CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent and Moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan, which airs Sundays on CBS. Our resident historian Felix Bennell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, uh, you know, you've heard it in the headlines. There was a devastating fire. It wiped out a commercial fishing pier last month in Ilwaco. Lots of crab nets lost. The community rallying around those fishermen, uh, helping them with the crabbing season. But uh, that's not the original name of the town. And we turn to Felix for that. Yeah, you know, Ilwaco's in Pacific County on Baker Bay, right at the mouth of the Columbia River on the sort of the backside there of Cape Disappointment. There was that terrible fire on January 22nd, devastated the private dock, which served the crab and tuna fishery. Now, for Ilwaco history, the place to go is the town's Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum. The director there is Madeline Matson. She said the origins of the name Ilwaco are indigenous, but there has been confusion in the past about whether the namesake was an indigenous Chinook woman or the man she married. This is the most recent tragedy for the community and something that we will continue to rise out of and recover from. And I think that the showing of the community support towards the crabbers and crabbing families has been wonderful um, and continues to kind of get back at that unity spirit of um, the original founding of Iwako and all of us being in it together. So uh, the Iwako is not the original name of the town, right? Oh. The, when it was settled in 1868, the Civil War was just a few years back. The name chosen for the town was Unity. Early settlers in the area included James Johnson and Isaac Wielden, but it seems like credit for being the founder of Unity is J.D. Holman. He plotted it and be, plotted it and became the first postmaster. Now, Madeline Madsen told me that that Unity post office, now the Iwako post office, has the honor of being the most southwesterly post office in Washington Territory and then Washington State. Can anyone take a guess what the zip code is? <laughs> nine eight zero 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 nine eight six two four. What oh. a great historic! Someday we'll do a feature on my favorite zip codes of the Evergreen State. Yeah. Um, now, as for the fire, Madeline says Ilwaco is a hard scrapple community. It's seen plenty of disaster, disasters, hard times economically, but other big fires too, including when that local the local school burned down about a hundred years ago. And she says though the town's been called Ilwaco since eighteen seventy six, the spirit of its original name still inspires the people there to come together. So unity is what's going to get them through this most recent tragedy, and we've already seen people responding and helping those crab fishers. Now. Cool thing about Iwako, you know, when it was founded, it had, they had the aspirations of being the sort of center of, of the universe down there. There actually was a narrow-gauge railroad that went from Iwako up to Nakata from 1888 to 1930. They called it the Clamshell Railroad. Eventually, they built it down to um, uh, down there, Megler, where the, uh, along the Columbia River, where you could actually get to uh, tidewater at all times. But the way the railroad schedule was set up, since the tide only came in twice a day, you couldn't actually have a dependable time when you could meet the boats at the pier. <laughs> And so the schedule shifted by 50 minutes each day. Like, oh. okay, the train leaves at 11 o'clock today. Tomorrow it leaves at 11.50 because the tide will come in. So, <laughs> And I guess it was kind of folksy, too. You could, you could wave it and stop it down. and didn't have to pay a fare. It was a very folksy thing. It actually survived till 1930, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. And then what I like most about the people of Milwaukee, as hard scrabble as they are and bouncing back from this tragedy and everything, back in 1893, they just sat back on the sidelines and watched when the people of South Bend stole the county seat away from Oysterville for Pacific oh, County. Oh, wow. Very controversy. Big, big controversial Political thing, yeah. controversy. So Iwako's had hard times in the past, and they beat him, and they're going to do it again this summer. I know, Sol, you spend a lot of time there. You love it. Yeah, it's so great. My great-great-grandfather, uh, who built our the house that we have down at Seabew, they used to take the T.J. Potter Sternwheeler from Portland up the Columbia River, and they'd dock right there at Megler, take the train in, and they built a house two blocks away from the train tracks because they didn't want to be next to the train tracks, <laughs> and they didn't want to be up on the water on the what they call the ridge because the uh, the jetty hadn't been built yet and they were worried that the water would come in. Well, what happened? The tracks went away. By the way, that road is still called the tracks. 
and they put 101 right in our front yard. So the main drag goes So great on my uh, great-great-grandfather Dundor uh, for uh, put, uh, great thinking, but yeah. He tried. Uh, yeah, Very but the cool. tracks are still there. They, they, I mean, in terms of the, they still have the the railroad signs, and well, I mean, some of the people who go in there, for, we still call it that road, the tracks. Very the cool. depot taverns right there on the, on the tracks, yeah. It's a wonderful place he to go. He always mentions visit. the tavern when there's any kind of story about history. It's like, well, there's, and there's the cemetery, and then there's the tavern. Oh, yeah. Chris's okay, history right. is pocked. Well, the cemetery outside of a Waco's really cool too. We've gone to that too. Yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, you go around, wander around the the Williams family, long friends of ours, and long term settler down there. They have, you know, it's just it's a cool little place. There are a lot of great little things to see down there. I feel like eventually Sully's going to be mayor of Long Beach, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. No, way too much controversy on the peninsula these days. (laughs) I could get into that, but whoa, there is. We don't have enough time. Save that for another day. 646 on Seattle's Morning News. Lots going on this weekend. And Cairo News Radio's Paul Holden has been keeping a track, uh, keeping track, that is, of where to find the fun. It's Friday then, it's Saturday, Sunday, what? It's Friday then, it's Friday, Sunday, what? The best day of the week has arrived yet again. Yes, I said the best day. And we got another weekend full of fun stuff to do in Seattle and in the region. Kicking things off is a busy Friday full of tasty treats and funky beats. Mmm, donuts. Mighty O Donuts is celebrating its 21st birthday. Head over to the Green Lake location for specialty donuts, gift card giveaways, 2003 throwback jams, and more. The party goes from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. If beer is more your thing, and in case you're curious if French onion soup would make a tasty pint, the Strange Brew Fest is for you. What's that? This, my friend, is a pint. It comes in pints. I'm getting up. The 18th edition of this two-day festival starts today, with over 20 breweries showing off out-of-this-world brews to go with this year's theme. Plus, there will be live music tonight and tomorrow, as well as food and a live glass-blowing demonstration. The Strange Brew Fest is in Port Townsend at the American Legion Hall. You will need a ticket, and they can be purchased at strangebrewfestpt.com. Fun with food isn't the only thing going on this weekend. Down in Olympia, it's time to get funky. The Olympia Funk Festival runs from today through Sunday. Sunday and features acts like George Porter Jr., The Rumble, and Polyrhythmics. You can get more info and tickets at olyfunkfest.com. Maybe the weather has you in the mood for a movie, and this weekend you can share the magic of the big screen with your kids or experience one of the greatest trilogies of all time. The Seattle Children's Film Festival starts tonight and runs through next weekend. I spoke with the executive director of the film festival, Kendra Ann Cheryl, and she gave me some recommendations. Our opening night uh, is uh, Wally at the PACAR IMAX Theater at the Pacific Science Center. That will be really special. Our closing night film is a film called The Inventor, and it was actually shortlisted for the Oscars this year, and it's written and directed by Jim Capobianco, who is the writer of Ratatouille, and it's a stop-motion animation film about Leonardo da Vinci, and it's beautiful, it's a big cast, it's so much fun, and then we have another film called Mountain Boy, uh, which is a beautiful film from the UAE, and it's about a young autistic boy who is traveling across the UAE to learn more about his family. And then the final one I'll say is we do have a teen night uh, on Friday, February 9th, uh, co Presented with teen techs. And so teens get in for $5. We have a, scre- a silk screening activity, a shorts program, and a feature film. And the feature film is a, a documentary about homeschooled teens preparing for their first prom. So it's really home, um, really heartwarming. By my life or death, I can protect you. 
my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. If you've always wanted a marathon, The Lord of the Rings, extended editions, of course, the Sif Cinema in downtown Seattle is bringing the trilogy back to the big screen. Tonight, you can catch a screening of The Fellowship of the Ring, and on Saturday, all three Lord of the Rings movies will be shown. Sif will also be showing The Hobbit trilogy early next week. Celebrate the Lunar New Year and the Year of the Dragon on Saturday with events throughout Seattle. The Wing Luke Museum will be holding its annual Lunar New Year Fair. There will be a traditional lion dance, calligraphy lessons, informative sessions, and plenty more. The lion dance is at 10 a.m. Saturday, and the Wing Luke Museum will open at 11. The Seattle Asian Art Museum will also be celebrating Lunar New Year with live performances and a lion dance, plus story times, a book raffle, food, and more. It all gets started on Capitol Hill at 10.30 Saturday morning. Also on Saturday, if you were curious about an e-bike or maybe looking for a new set of wheels, the Seattle Bike Swap goes from 8 to 2 at the Seattle Center Exhibition Hall. Plenty of things to do this weekend, so don't miss out. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. Strange Brew Fest. That does sound interesting. I don't know about you, Sully. Would you eat a French onion soup flavored beer or whatever that no. was? No, you wouldn't even try no. it. Do you drink any flavored beers? No. Do you, well, you I don't mean, enjoy like I mean, a mango they, IPA? No, or? I, once they get super fruity for me. Okay. Uh, but then some of the hazies I have consumed over the years feel like I'm drinking orange juice. Right. I'm like, no, it's a little too sweet for yeah. me. So he likes so, the IPAs that taste like tree sap. Oh, you know, the, no, I'm yeah, not. like tar. I'm uh-huh. not your typical IPA nerd and... Uh, what, what's the word you're trying going for? You're trying uh, to snobby. diversify now, though. Uh, but no, I just kind of, I mean, I don't know. I like things with a little bit of flavor, but, you know, more pine, piney, hoppy kind of guy. Okay. So I but. love these uh, segments that Paul does because I didn't know I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And I didn't know he talks about this uh, Lord of the Rings marathon that's going on at the Sif Cinema, which used to be the Cinerama, obviously. Yeah. That's where I originally, as a kid, saw all of the Lord of the Rings films, so I might have to check those out this weekend. Oh, that's because, so nostalgic. Yeah, nostalgic. I need to revisit those movies, too. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan as well. Uh, we're talking with Utah virologist Dr. Keith Jerome this morning, and I have to tell you, Keith, it, it feels like everybody I know with school-age children is going through some sort of H-E double hockey sticks with whatever viruses are out there. I just got over a four-week cough that was so painful, and I still don't know what it was. What is happening out there? <laughs> yeah, that's really true, Colleen. And, and that's my experience, too. And everybody who talks to me tells me their their, their virus stories. Uh, essentially, we have a lot of viruses all circulating at the same time. So we still have covid We've got RSV, that's respiratory syncytial virus. We've got flu, and that's flu A plus flu B. Mm. They're both going around at the same time. And then all the regular stuff that we don't even talk about by name, rhinoviruses, the other coronaviruses before COVID, and and other stuff that people get. And it's all sort of happening at the same time. And the fact is, most people right now don't know what they had. Mm. Why does it seem post-COVID the flu, I don't even know what to call it anymore. We used to call it flu season. Now it's COVID flu RSV season. Why does it feel to be compounded, that everything's worse and happening more? Well, part of it is we're hyper aware, of course. That's part of it. Um, And then flu and RSV typically year to year sort of don't necessarily overlap. So um, RSV can come earlier, kind of late fall. Flu typically comes closer to the start of the year. And they've overlapped this year. And then, of course, now we have COVID with us all the time. Mm. 
Um, and so it just does seem like there's a lot going on and, and it, it, it's partially that we're aware of it, but it's partially that it's real. So none of them are especially bad right now. I mean, it's what the CDC is calling a moderate flu year, not, not the worst, not the best, um, probably a pretty bad RSV year. And then COVID, we have a ton of COVID infections, fortunately not a huge number of hospitalizations, but still over a thousand deaths a week. So it, it's just a real thing. And, and it's all hitting at once. And where are we with the COVID variants? Have we lost the classic ones from the beginning of the pandemic and they've morphed into something new and less severe? Or what are we learning? I remember when we had names for them every month. Yeah, well, those still exist. Um, and essentially when a new one comes in over the course of a couple of weeks to a couple of months, it completely replaces the previous one. So if you looked at 10,000 infected people, you would not find a single person with the very first COVID mm. anymore. So it's now it's almost all this one we call Jan 1. That's a subvariant of Omicron, which is a, a bunch of the different letter combinations have mm -hmm. been variants of Omicron. Um, Jan 1 is very infectious. It's pretty good at getting around immunity that we've built up to the previous ones. A uh, bit of good news is that the vaccines, the, the updated vaccines work quite well against Jan 1. So we have ways to fight against it. But essentially, once a new one comes, it essentially becomes all that we see. And that's where we are now with Jan 1. Let's talk about vaccines. Are people getting inoculated against COVID? Um, not not very much. Not as much as probably one would like it from a public health point mm -hmm. of view. Um, children, only about 10% have received the updated vaccine. Only 10%? Uh, for adults, it's about 20%. Yeah, so this is the latest, the Omicron-specific booster shot. Only about 20% of adults. When it's only 10% of children and 20% of adults, okay, great for those people, but it does nothing for herd immunity, right? Yeah, well, uh, th that's that's definitely true. And the vaccines have proven to not be especially good at, you know, at herd immunity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the COVID's been able to continue to spread. The people who get the vaccine don't get very sick from it. They do much better than they would have otherwise. So that's good. And it's interesting to start to think about, to start to think about if we get in a world where only a few people are actually getting these shots, it may actually benefit them that everybody else isn't quite frankly, because it, remember I said that JN1 is an immune escape variant, but it's escaping natural immunity because that's what the 80% of people have. So it isn't actually evolving there's not much what we call immune pressure due to the vaccine, right? So, okay, so, explain this further to me. Yeah, help me understand. So, so if if everybody gets the vaccine, what the virus would, in theory, try to do is escape the immunity we're inducing ah, by the vaccine. It would become stronger and smarter. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's why um, the other kinds of vaccines are updated from time to time. Um, at twenty percent of the adult population getting the vaccine that doesn't really matter to the virus as a whole. So um, that's why one of the potential reasons why JN1 is still very susceptible to the flu shot or excuse me, to the, to the COVID vaccine. Um, so you, you kind of said it's great for the people who get it. That's definitely true. Um, and, you know, we hate to see anybody get sick unnecessarily of a virus. So I would love to see more people getting vaccinated. But, mm. um, you know, it's a choice everybody needs to make for themselves. The elderly, immunocompromised, pregnant oh, sure. children. Those are the most important, well, I imagine. A thousand people are dying a week. I mean, you know, think about, compare that to other global, you know, things you worry about, car events, mm -hmm. or car accidents, war, firearm violence. I mean, that's a lot of people still dying of COVID mm -hmm. in this country. So, um 
you know, we'd, we'd love to, to prevent unnecessary sickness and death. Certainly we're not at the peak of where we were. It's gone down. A thousand is still a lot. When as a virologist, where would you like, I mean, zero, obviously we want nobody to die, but when would you feel like, okay, I think we've got this under control now. It's just like any other coronavirus. Well, I, there's not an answer to that. Mm. You know, we're not done until nobody dies of viruses, is that right? right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and that's this aspirational goal that we probably will never get to, and certainly mm. in my working lifetime. But I think when 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 this the severe illness and death is preventable, that's a real tragedy. Um, and so that's where we'd like to to get the word out, at least so that people know these vaccines are out there. They're an option that you can take to to help better your own health mm-hmm. when you have you how many times have you had covid twice twice now and how was it for you uh first time it was nearly nothing for me i actually was quite active outdoors <laughs> by myself and hiked around second time i was on the sofa pretty sick and okay. that's um for me i'm still that was i forget how long ago now i'm only now coming into the window where i actually can get the the the, the, the omicron boosters i mean oh, i sure. have it because because you had, I had covid about a week before those vaccines became available, and I, you know, I had my appointment ready to go, and then uh, you're, you're you're essentially told kind of not to because essentially I had it. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, we're getting close to that, and and I was sort of saying, well, maybe you know, next time when I know I'm going to be around a big group, or you know, there'll be an inciting event, and I'll think this is a good time to get that extra little bit of immunity build up. Uh, Dr. Keith Jerome, we always appreciate your talks. Thank you sure. for updating us on the state of viruses. My pleasure. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A high school music teacher from Virginia will be honored at the 66th 6th Annual Grammy Awards on Sunday for her advocacy in ensuring that all students, including those with developmental or intellectual disabilities, have access to high-quality music education. CBS's Jamie Wax has the story. Listen to the music of the Annandale High School Symphony Orchestra. There is a simple secret in learning to play these beautiful notes. Here we go. Says conductor and music teacher Annie Ray. You have to be very loud and bold and be willing to make bad sounds before you learn how to make good sounds. So in my classroom, they learn confidence because they just have to shed their inhibitions and just go for it. The entirety was a disaster. I always tell the students, strive for excellence, like go beyond what you think that you can do. And that vulnerability that we feel when we make wrong notes and laugh about it together. We like, what's the worst that could happen? It was a wrong note. It's a lesson her students embrace. I would say that also applies to any other category of life. You have to start off bad and you have to be working at it in order for it to improve. Ready? And here we go. Annie Ray makes sure that her class is a safe, welcoming space for all students. She's a leader that doesn't leave. She stands next to you. Sosan Barakse came to Annandale from Afghanistan. She's someone that opens her door of a small office all the time to talk about anything. She's someone that talks to her as a friend. She's like changed me from somebody who was kind of shy, not really interested in orchestra. Even like five years from now, I'll end up playing the viola to some extent in the future. Do you feel like you change people's lives? These students have changed my life, like completely. How I uh, approach teaching, how I approach uh, seeing the world. Hello, hello. That's especially true with the Crescendo Orchestra. Andrew, do you want to show them your beatboxing, beatboxing skills? 
Led by Ray, it includes members of Annandale High's large population of special ed students. I knew once I started working with the Crescendo kids, there's just so much more potential here of, of what it truly means to meet them where they're at. That means starting with cardboard instruments. It means color-coded strings and stickers to guide students on where to place their hands and fingers. They are making music together. They are playing notes together exactly at the same time, and they just connected. What does that do All for you? Oh, <laughs> endless joy. <laughs> I always say, like, the kids, uh, someone will say, like, oh, they're so lucky to be in your class. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I took what I learned from them, and I applied it to my gen ed classes. Always a great story. 747 on Seattle's Morning News. Colleen O'Brien here, our producer David Burbank. We have Sully here and the person you've been waiting for all morning, G. Man. Scott. Man, you know, y'all y'all was waiting for me this yeah, morning. <laughs> I know a lot of people wait to hear your voice and they go, you know what? G. Scott hits the air and that's when I wake up. <laughs> I think That's it's when I wake up. I'm asleep this whole time. I think it's happens. a compliment. What's happening, y'all? Well, we hear, according mm-hmm. to Nielsen, yeah. which we have a you know complicated relationship with Nielsen, um, 86% of adults in the Seattle area are planning a vacation this year. Yeah, and they especially want to plan it right now. You know what I mean? February is the month. January is the month that you, you're you recovering from that mm-hmm. Christmas debt. Mm-hmm. You're recovering from that holiday pounds. You are doing all your resolutions. You're getting things in order. You're relaxing a little bit. But you've had enough of the weather. And February hits you like Lois. Mm-hmm. Let's go somewhere. And what I love about this article, we talked about it yesterday on the show. And I knew, like I told David, I'm like, man, this is a hot topic because people right now are all talking about, I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about Seattle area, if the, there's a perfect time to leave here, I would say between February and March and that that time. Because let's keep it a buck, y'all. That means that keeps it 100. Uh, let's, let's be honest, everybody. The summer times in here, why you want to leave? You don't no, want to leave beautiful. here. So in this, Colleen, it talked about the exact places mm-hmm. where people want to go. The number one thing, go ahead. Beach or lake vacations. Boy, you know what? They want to go get that sunshine. Even you know, my kids, get- are, we were walking home from school yesterday with my 10-year-old, and she was like, Mom, mm-hmm. can we go to Mexico? And I was like, <laughs> you've got $7,000 in there? Like, even my kids are dreaming of a, a sunnier, mm-hmm. warmer vacation. Right. Right. So you got those kind of trips and then you got the uh, adventure well, trips. OK, but in between Beach Lake vacation and adventure vacation. Yeah. Number two, 25 percent surveyed other. What does that mean? Well, what you does know, other mean? I mean, other other could be one of those sully vacations. You know what I mean? Long it could beach. be you know, right. Long beach, long the coast. Well, this type of year, you could go skiing, too, because we haven't had the greatest Snow up in our mountains. Right. Maybe you're going to head over to you know Colorado or mm. something. Maybe get okay. a little skiing it. or up to BC. Wait, that's fine. Wait, yeah, hold that's on. Right. Only five point four percent do ski vacations. Now, Sully, let me tell you something. You. Let me let me let me check this out. If I get you coming in and I say, "Hey, hey, what you do?" Well, we're getting ready to go on a ski vacation. 
You talk different when you get ready to take a ski <laughs> yeah, vacation. Like, yeah. how many of you, if you're listening right now and you've gone on a ski vacation, never gone. you haven't gone hungry in a while. Yes. You know what I mean? We're going to Vail. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I, I haven't done years. that in a long time. <laughs> yes. yes. Braxley and Paxton are taking their ski lessons. Oh. They talk a certain way. Yeah. Colleen, have you been on a ski vacation? No. I haven't skied since I was 10. And even then, I couldn't get over the skiing, bunny slopes. Skiing is one thing. Ski vacation yes. is another. Yes. Like, that's a whole other deal. But that's low on the list. Ski vacation, that's mm. 5.4. Other is still a mystery to golf? me. But adventure, golf is the last on the list. Mm. 2% are taking huh. a golf. I wonder for the vacation. other, I'm kind of falling into this other. I'm uh, Next week, I'm taking my wife on a little trip. Hopefully, she's not listening because I haven't told her where we're going. We're actually going to Vancouver, B.C., which Ooh, is, you know, fun. the place you want to go in the winter, just yeah. even further north. Um, yeah. But it's just because there's a lot of fun food there. Maybe it's sort of a food slash um, seeing uh, museums yeah. we're going to Off see. So path. it's not necessarily a specific driven thing. We're not going to the beach. We're not going to a lake. Okay. We're not, you know, not going for a specific reason other than to just kind of get away, get away from the norm of Seattle. I buy that because that's what we're doing this year. Typically, we do try to, you know, take one uh, stretch vacation a year. Right, and right. that's fun as a family. But this year we decided to save money. We're just doing smaller family trips, a three day weekend to off the beaten path places. Like I really want to visit this southern coastal Oregon town. I'm forgetting the name of it now, but they have a market there that's famous for hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Lawrence? Pe- maybe. But that's where, and then maybe North go Bend. down a little further to the Redwood Forest, oh, right? Yeah. So you I guess, sneak yeah. sneak in abandoned dunes and play some golf. A forest <laughs> vacation probably wouldn't make the list, but it would make right. other. What are you doing this year, G? Uh, nothing. Uh, my wife was like, baby, I want to go to the lake. I said, we can go to Lake Taps. <laughs> What about Lake Chelan? You ever been there? Uh, yeah, it's too expensive. <laughs> yeah, true? I got the money like that. You, you know what I mean? Manson. Right. She's all want to go to the ocean. We can go to Ocean Shores. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only problem with you the coastal vacation here is no matter the year, it's still tough right. to get in the water. I want to go along the Pacific. We can go to Pacific Pack Highway. <laughs> I kind of like that though. In the fall and the winter, when it's cold, there's the not as many people this there. It's gray. It's kind of rainy. Yeah. I don't know. There's something cozy about that. Yeah. There's really romantic about that. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I, but speaking of romantic, I bet you Dave Burbank oh, so is romantic. so romantic. I got a lot of fun stuff planned. Yeah, actually. I'm very excited. So excited. Look at that, man. Newly I, I married. To, I, I'm terrible at that. <laughs> you don't have to be. If you can give up sugar and bread, mm. you can plan a romantic vacation for your wife. Well, okay? I've figured out my wife's love language, and I ain't trying to gossip. Y'all ain't heard it from me. Food. Oh, feed her. Yes. That's all I got to do. Isn't that an act of service making or a gift? Is she receiving gifts or acts of service? Uh, it, they don't have that on the list. Oh. Food. Food. Okay, just food in any form. Okay, fair enough. See y'all. Well, happy vacation to y'all. If you want to tell us where you're going this year, I'm interested. Muckleshoot Casino Resort text line 888-973-5476. Right now, our update on the current legislative session. We're bringing in Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Hi, Matt. Good morning, Colleen. I just heard you talk about the uh, what the LCB uh, is mm-hmm. doing with the lewd laws, and that's why I was going to elaborate a bit, because we were really the first media to report about the lewd law being discussed at the LCB, the Liquor Cannabis Board meeting on Wednesday. We reported on Wednesday, so I'm proud to say that. And then now they have these changes, which would affect state law, and the lawmakers are taking a look at it. We, those uh, at, at issue was those four LGBTQ uh, visits by liquor 
Liquor Control Board officers uh, and the reports of lewd conduct. Uh, well, and the, we reported on that hearing on Wednesday. So yesterday afternoon, the LCB sent a letter to Governor Inslee saying that it's suspending the lewd conduct enforcement because of the backlash it got from these LGBTQ from the LGBT community as well as their visits. Now, uh, basically, the LCB said they were unaware of the troubling history of enforcement of lewd behavior, specifically at LGBTQ clubs. So from now on, they're not going to issue any citations for lewd conduct. Uh, How are they defining lewd conduct? So it's very specific in the law. Uh, Lewd conduct is basically exposing uh, genitals and personal body parts. It's obviously sexual activity is more than is beyond lewd conduct but the fact that you can wear scantily clad clothing and that's uh, because of the the nature of these clubs and the and i'll call it the cultural part of this club that's part of the clothing but what like they applaud they didn't raid bikini barista stands when they were wearing just pasties and thongs why raid? or i know they don't like us using the word raid why enforce this at these specific gay bars and not at the baristas there's a good answer for that because there's specific laws regarding uh, establishments that serve alcohol. alcohol. That's okay. why you don't have alcohol at strip clubs. It's because mm-hmm. of the lewd law related to alcohol. So it's different from when you put alcohol in the equation, there's different laws. And so lewd means something different at a place okay. that uh, serves beer and alcohol. And I just so, want to be clear. I'm, I, I'm not. Uh, getting down on any baristas who like to dress however they I I want to be clear about that you know if you want to do business that way fine if you want to be in a bar and a jockstrap fine but I just wanted to know like why would they target these LGBTQ bars and not so that answers it for me thank you yeah yeah it's because law so now the, the LCB is talking about working with lawmakers to revamp the lewd law and that's something we reported on so I'm glad to say we were a little bit ahead of the game on nice. that one so Moving on to another story that was talked about yesterday, another issue, 10-cent deposits. We all heard about them. We know other states that have them for their beers and uh, for their beer cans and any kind of can and a plastic bottle. So in a bid to encourage recycling and promote environmental sustainability, our state's looking at doing the same. So state lawmakers are considering the implementation of a 10-cent beverage container deposit system under House Bill 2144. Now, it's a proposal supported by beverage distributors because they're going to run the system. And it's not the state. It's opposed by grocery stores and existing recycling centers and waste management businesses. It's modeled after the system that's existed in Oregon for several years. Here's Scott Hazelgrove. He represents the beer and wine distributors. They're for it. It's got proven results in Oregon where 85% of the consumers get their deposits back and it works because the consumers have an incentive to recycle. They get the 10 cent deposit. And but uh, that number that he says, 85 percent, that's a, uh, a number that opponents of this say is overinflated. The Department of Ecology estimates Washington's state's return of recyclable beverage containers is about 30 percent right now. Now, this whole system relies on the beverage distributors setting up a cooperative to run the system similar to the one that Oregon is running. Now, Eric Chambers of the Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative, here's how he talks about how the back end is going to work. The co-op then charges the distributor 10 cents for every beverage container they sell. The distributor recoups that money by charging retailers 10 cents, who then recoup that money by charging consumers 10 cents. Consumers can then redeem the deposit from the co-op that was formed. So it's a circle. 
That's right. The vouchers. What would happen is that consumers will then redeem the deposit after they've returned the, the containers to the drop-off center for a voucher that can be used in a retail store. That voucher would be funded by the cooperative, uh, essentially making the system a big circle. So who's what? funding the recycling well, system? I, I have a question, because yeah. I, I, if the money is circular, if you're being charged the money and then you can recoup the money, you're being charged and you recoup the money, what's the incentive? Because we're not making money off it. We're just recouping our money, but it's extra work for us. Who benefits from this? That's a great question. That's that's that you you hear the report. It makes us it makes us do a lot more work than just simply going to some recycling center, dropping the the cans off and getting the money on the spot. It doesn't work that way. So here's who's funding that system. Here's Eric Chambers again. The system is funded by beverage distributors, and part of the revenue that's used for the system is the value of unclaimed refunds from consumers who choose not to return their containers. So it's a money grab from the distributors. Exactly. They will pocket the profits. So we're creating Uh, a system that creates more work for us, does not benefit us, and benefits distributors. Why would anybody sign up for this? Well, (laughs) the distributors want it. Okay, I'm sure they do. (laughs) Yeah, this is a proposal by, this is the one that's being fronted right now by state lawmakers. So this is what we have on the table. But here's that, like you were talking about, here's how the back end for us would work. It's not as simple as just bringing those cans and bottles and getting your money. Um, It'll be, uh, it's a bag program. You First, you have to set up an account with the co-op. Then you get a bag that can be Pick, uh, that you can pick up at a drop-off point. You put your glass and plastic and metal containers in that bag. Then there's a sticker on that bag that's associated with your account. And then you just drop it off at the location. The containers are counted on the back end and credited to your account. Now, when you're ready to use that money in your account, you have to go into the retailer, print out a voucher at a kiosk in the retailer. Then you can use that voucher at the retailer to buy something. Who's the retailer? How about that? Who's the retailer? It could be anybody. Okay. They have to sign up for it. Like a grocery store? Not yes, like it could be Macy's? a grocery store where you buy your beverages, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, and the thing is, they the, the law doesn't say where these pickup places or these drop off places should be located. There's nothing in the law that says that. It has to be uh, a grocer that wants to buy into the program. Here's Eric Chambers again. It's a bit of a foreign concept in a state that's not familiar with it, but in Oregon we have um, one million bottle drop account holders uh, who turn back in about 12 million bags a year. And so you can redeem those funds from your account um, by getting a voucher at a kiosk inside the grocery store. And that's the the only requirement of retailers in the bill is that they receive a kiosk so that you can get your cash out. Sully has some experience in this. Yeah, well, we used to, in Oregon, you had to go back and take your cans in, and then they started putting in the machines where you had to stick the cans and bottles in by hand, but then those became overwrought, and then actually they became folks where you know, homeless encampments would grow right around those, and it became an industry where people would pay the homeless to go out, and then they would take the cans, they'd give them the receipts. Uh, so they went to the bag program, which my brothers really love. They go down and they put the bag out at the when we go to the beach. Mm-hmm. We throw all their cans in there, and my brothers you know, figure out, this time it's my bag, this time it's your bag. So your and, brothers, and you, you feel like this is a good deal for you, despite the unclaimed money going to Well, because you pay for it in your price when you buy them in Oregon, 10 cents a can, so it only makes sense to get it back. Now, things we buy in Washington, which we do, then they get credit for those in Oregon. So they'll, you know, because they still have a, a thing that says mm-hmm. ten cents Oregon. So it works in Oregon, but uh, it works for that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at. Works for who? 
The distributor gets the money. We get more work. Well, they get more money if people don't turn it back in. Which they're betting on because they said it. But my my family, I mean, it works for people who do it. Yeah, it's not that big of a hassle, really. I don't think it's a hassle for me. I think it's a you're creating a system to make you more money that requires more work for me. That is also true. Yes, but it does. My my brothers seem to make it work for them, and it's not too much of a hassle on the back end. Okay, Matt, go ahead. Well, I think we're running out of time, aren't we, Colleen? Oh I my just, gosh, uh, it's eight twenty-four. We are. I have no traffic, but that's I, okay. Go. I did not know that I was this passionate about uh, recycling and. Uh, well, all of this, I, so. I, had a, I had a plan accordingly. Yes, you did. <laughs> all right, we'll watch this bill as it makes its way through the legislature. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.